3CR would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bururung people of the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present uh, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Okay, so we have a pretty packed, or an interesting show today. Um, So firstly, um, we're going to talk a bit about um, the sort of prison solidarity and protests in the US um, that's going on at the minute. Um, and then you guys, so Em and Katia, are going to interview me. About the sort of Amazia um, cultural appropriation and Madonna um, stuff that's been happening. Um, and then at 7.30, we've got uh, Dr. Shahidal Alam. Yes, yeah, sorry. So it's actually Saful oh, okay. Islam who's going to be talking about his uh, brother-in-law who's currently imprisoned oh. in Bangladesh. And that's that's Dr. Shah, Shahajit. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. All right, cool. And at 7.45, we're going to be chatting with Rachel Saravanamutu, who's a senior lawyer at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in the Human Rights Law Program. And we're going to be chatting about the Migration Validation of Port Appointment Bill 2018 that was just passed last week um, that turns Ashmore Reef into a port and retrospectively um, invalidates over a 1,000 people's claim to asylum. And, that, and that's dating back, like it's supposed to be back, um, yeah, retrospective. Yes. Yeah, dating back to back, 2000, back. 2002 or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we're going to be having a chat, um, and on a lighter note, we're going to be having a chat with Hella Ibrahim um, about uh, getting publishing, um, getting your work published, um, a bit about her platform, Jed Press, um, and then a bit about Melbourne's Writers Festival. Yeah, but first up, we're going to go to a song. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays.
Hello, you're listening to Thursday Breakfast um, with me, M, Katya, and Shahrazad. It's the 23rd of August, and this is sort of our take two intro because we had a few technical difficulties first thing in the morning. Um, Sorry, probably no one was listening at first. Thing. No, yeah, no, no, that's, that's okay. It's, we don't need to reiterate that we have technical <laughs> difficulties. <laughs> Yes, it's very cold and it was a very slow start to exactly. Thursday morning. So we're starting fresh. <laughs> yes. We're here. Exactly. Speaking of being cold, I think it's going to get to a top of 18 today, but right now it's about 5 degrees. So rug up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hate these um, really cold mornings and these sort of okay days. It's very confusing. Yeah. yeah. Too many layers. Anyway, mm-hmm. we were just listening to um, Tata Miluda, so um, a song called Gagaria Zubida. Um, and that is, um, she's a singer from the northeastern region of Morocco, the indigenous region of the Rif, uh, the Amazigh region. Um, and Which we're going to be talking about very soon. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. also the track just before that was um, Sophie Grophy, who we played last week, who, as listeners can maybe tell, I'm a bit obsessed with. <laughs> um, but that was a track called Baby Let's Fly from her debut EP last year, Purpolarity. Great. And so I think now we're going to actually have a chat with our one and only Shahrazad. Yes, <laughs> welcome presenter and guest. Yeah. So, um, yeah, not sure if you're aware, but two days ago, Madonna appeared at the Video Music Awards wearing cultural clothing of the Amazigh people of Northern Africa. She's been heavily criticised on social media for culturally appropriating the clothes of Berber or Amazigh people in Morocco. Discussions of cultural appropriation often centre around cultural groups in the Americas, such as African-American, Central American or Native American cultures. In an Australian context, we rarely hear about the ways in which Indigenous cultures are appropriated, in particular from North Africa. This morning, we'd like to explore the issue further with our darling Shahrazad Bull, (laughs) one of our co-hosts. Um, who has Amazigh roots and is doing a PhD on social movements in Morocco at Deakin Uni. I'm, I'm so tempted to be like, welcome! <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you want to kick it off? Yes, Katia? I will. So, Shahrazad, can you tell us a little bit about who the Amazigh people are as a cultural group? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, the Amazigh are the sort of non-Arab indigenous people of Northern Africa. Um, and there's several, there's several groups and tribes, um, and it ranges, um, from Morocco, where there's a, there's a lot, um, so 40 to 60% of Moroccans, um, are Amazigh or indigenous. Um, non-Arab, um, and it goes south to Mauritania, uh, Mali, Algeria, and then back north, Algeria, Tunisia, um, and then there's um, and in Libya as well. Um, and then there's a few um, Amazigh uh, tribes and uh, people in Egypt as well. Um, and so the yeah, so Amazigh means free or well, free man, or and Imazighan, which is a plural, free people. Um, and it's the people who were there before Arab invasion um, of the 7th and 8th centuries um, and the ongoing sort of, I suppose you could call it <laughs> Arab colonisation. Um, but yeah, um, so, and that's, and uh, I suppose the best translation into English is Indigenous uh, people. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, and so, because, yeah, I'm very out of the loop and, like, don't really follow these things, but what's been going on with Madonna 
Yeah, okay. So um, I actually didn't realise anything because I'm also out of the loop with these things. Um, but yesterday someone tagged me in a Facebook post um, and was like, can you speak to this? Scheherazade, blah, blah, blah. Madonna's wearing Berber and um, the person used Berber um, uh, clothing, you know, and I was like, what? what is this? You know, I read the article um, and apparently she referred to herself as, as the Berber Queen uh, whilst wearing a, oh. one of the, yeah. Well, apparently, I don't know. I haven't, you know, like actually listened or watched what she was saying because I don't want to. Um, but, um, and she was wearing a, one of the uh, traditional uh, garments um, in of a tribe of the Ait Basamara tribe in the um, sort of just in the southern uh, western region, um, just above Western Sahara, um, yeah, in Morocco. Um, and the, what she was actually wearing um, was uh, an outfit that you wear um, for marriage, so it's gifted to you by um, your your husband and you wear it on your marriage day and that sort of thing. Um, but also, it doesn't just signify that. It's um, It's... It's clothing that has um, been passed down for centuries, millennia. You know, we're talking about uh, you know more than two thousand years, um, and for it to just be displayed like that by Madonna is mm-hmm. is obviously for me it was like really upsetting, um, and the fact that she was using the word Berber as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you guys have a question about that. So. Yes. <laughs> Um, well, maybe we can actually go into that now before yeah. we go into because we we're going to talk a little bit about how collections from Berber or Amazigh people are uh-huh. kept by often by non-indigenous mm. and white um, people from Europe and America. And mm. so, but before we go into that, can we talk a little bit about why the term Berber and where that comes from and and Whites. Whether, why it's problematic? Yeah, yeah, sure. So Berber is actually so that actually. Um, it's from the French word berber, um, which has its roots from um, the Latin word barbari, uh, and there's also a similar one in Greek, um, which is like barbara or something like that. Um, and that all those words ref, uh, ref mean barbarians, um, and that is what was um, so during the Roman empires and the Greek empires, they referred to the people of North Africa as as barbarians. And, you know, this is something that we still see today, um, sort of like uh, referring to a group of people in a certain way in order to legitimise X, Y, Z. Um, and so that's what the Roman empires did. Um, so yeah, especially, especially, you know, if we're talking about Morocco, we're talking about the Roman Empire because that's where um, there was lots of sort of Roman influence in, in Morocco, um, in what we call nowadays Morocco. <laughs> um yeah, and the, they refer to the indigenous people or the people there as um, barbarians. And so there's been a huge movement, especially um, in the in the past like 20 years, uh, but you know, especially in the past 10 years, to uh, reclaim that and know the actual where actually Amazigh, where Imazigh, um, we speak the Tabazigh language, um, and uh, we are not barbarians, you know. So mm. I think that's why it's 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 problematic because it's it's a hangover from the um, colonization of the French, but also because it means it actually has its roots from the word barbarian. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and so I mean, like you mentioned before, Katia, um, there's a lot of Amazigh clothing and cultural pieces that are held in collections around the world, mostly by non-indigenous white 
colonists. Mm. Um, for example, I think there's over 600 items held in the Berber Museum, which is owned by the Musée Yves Saint Laurent um, in Marrakesh. So, yeah, could you just talk a bit about how ownership by non-Indigenous peoples of cultural products, of Amazigh cultural products, um, yeah, how does that have an effect and a negative impact on Amazigh people? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think there's there's two sides of this debate, or there's a few sides of this. Um, some people uh, think it keeps the sort of culture and like it, it preserves culture, you know, um, especially now as we 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 you know you wouldn't go down the streets wearing traditional. Um, Oh, especially especially wedding outfit. You wouldn't go down the streets every day wearing a traditional wedding outfit. But also, um, you know, you wouldn't be wearing all the traditional jewellery that you would wear um, in the past and that sort of thing. So there's there's an argument there that, you know, um, it pres- it preserves you know um, cultural heritage. Um, but there's also um, another argument and one that I kind of fall in line with that, um, and I suppose. The best way I could explain it is I was at this talk uh, a few months ago um, and there was an academic who shall not be named. Um, <laughs> and we'll call, we'll call them them that shall not be named. <laughs> um, who who said that, you know, yeah, there's an argument out there that, um, that that colonialists should have never taken all these things from, from the countries that they colonised. Um but then the person also said, but then <laughs> um, that would mean that these things would just be lost or destroyed because of phenomena like ISIS. Um, and I just remember being quite shocked. I was like, ISIS is a product of colonization, neoliberalism and, you know, westernization. <laughs> so, um, mm. and yeah, so I, I think there are a few arguments out there, um, but I, I definitely think there is something um, that is problematic about museums museums in general in so far as it like displays an exotic it displays a something um, and it tokenizes culture mm. yeah and also yeah i guess you know because there's an in- incredibly strong repatriation movement mm-hmm. here in you know what we call australia as well um both for cultural objects for and even for people's remains, you know, remains oh. of ancestors. And I think this it links together as well of like, yes, absolutely, that there can be these calls for protection of things that are incredibly important, but who actually is in control of that? Who is doing that protecting? Oh. Who, who is gatekeeping um, access as well? Um, and when stuff gets put in museums, it's seen as, um, you know, like static, dead or something like that, as opposed oh. to actually living cultural yeah, and it's also okay. seen as a as a way to like it's displayed to to sh- to highlight Western superiority mm-hmm. pretty much. You know, um, it's you know look at these like you know exotic, strange but backwards like you know mm-hmm. uh, cultures. You know, and that and that that's just as opposed to like our advanced mm-hmm. and modern you know Western culture, or whatever the yeah. you know whatever the, the, I won't use this way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, like you were saying before, though, with there being, you know, two sides or several different sides to yeah. that debate around um, the so-called like, preservation of culture within museums. Similarly, there's been, you know, there has been some media coming out of Morocco that has 
actually, you know, taken delight and been really positive in Madonna choosing um, Marrakesh to celebrate her 60th birthday, um, which is where she was photographed in Amazigh clothing. So why, yeah, why would um, not all people from that region see her actions as problematic? Mm. Yeah, so I, th- I think there's, you know, there's never just one voice. I think everyone has different opinions about different things. Um, but also uh, the media in Morocco... Um, is so okay. Do not, like stop me if I start going on my rant. No, please. Usually, what I'm researching, um, but the media in Morocco is, is heavily, heavily, heavily controlled um, by the state, um, and um, so I, I'm not too sure which media you're referring to. Um, but you know, if it's something that's going to like look good, look good for the state, then obviously they're going to promote it. Mm. You know, um, and if it's Madonna wearing, um, you know. Uh, indigenous, well, you know, Moroccan clothing is what they would call it, um, then, yeah, they would promote that. Um, but I've been, I read this article um, on NPR, actually, just before just before coming in, um, and there was, on, on one hand, um, someone was saying this, and on the other hand, and then they interviewed some Moroccan dude, I don't know why they interviewed a Moroccan dude, who said, oh, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... <laughs> Um, I'll just like give you a bit of background so that um, there, there's um, so I've been having a few discussions with different people on social media, um, particularly yesterday um, about about this um, and the, the particular headpiece that um, yeah I think I, I sort of discussed this um, but the particular headpiece that she was wearing um, that Madonna was wearing um, was from yeah a small uh, tribe called Ait Bamran um, but also um, the the that tribe who were partly nomads um, were renowned to were renowned um, colonial res- resistors you know um, and women um, of that tribe actually used similar jewelry um, as weapons um, they would also because women d- um, get targeted less they would also hide a lot of um, weapons and stuff in their in their clothing. Um, uh, you know, and all this sort of a- aided the sort of resistance movements against co- mm-hmm. the French uh, colonizers, um, and that's the sort of thing that, like, you know, to have it reduced to some sort of token, mm-hmm. you know, um, by someone who profits off neoliberalism and colonial structures, um, is I find quite quite offensive. We've kept the, these sort of cultural traditions alive and some of us. So I just actually on Sunday got a tattoo um, that um, my, so my great grandma I found this photo of my great grandma ages ago um, and she had a tattoo on her forehead and her chin which is um, traditional for um, the people of my, of my tribe the um, the full tribe um, and um, I had to like do heaps of research and you know everything and I, I can't wear that on my forehead and chin like there's no way I could do that in nowadays um, but you know we, we, we try and keep these traditions alive and then to have it sort of just tokenized on stage at the some MTV awards or whatever, the mm. music video awards or whatever it was, you know, um, just reminds us, um, like, how far we need to go, mm. <laughs> how yeah. far we need to go, um, and how people just don't care and just don't know what, how much these sort of things um, are significant to us. Mm. Yeah. And do you think... 
Yeah. Do you think we can ever reach a place where um, using the, yeah, the use of cultural products can be seen not as appropriation but as, I don't know, like quote-unquote reverence or, you know, respect or something like this? Or... I feel like I'm also, you know, giving away what I feel in like the, in in asking this, but like, or or given the structures of colonialism and imperialism and neoliberalism, as you're talking about, like how like how do how is that sort of a, a zero sum game? But how can like so? I've, I was thinking about that. I was talking about this with one of my friends who um, who's uh, lives well, who lived in the states and who has um, lots of connections in the states. Um, and we're talking and we're like, so it's the same thing. So she saw saw a white a white person wearing dreads, um, or like locks the other day, um, and she's like, you know, I I wonder if she saw that video that Sean King um, shared on on social media of like um, African American um, young girl getting kicked out of class because of her 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 hair, you know, um, I don't think that's anything that any white person could ever understand. So I don't know, I. You know, in terms of cultural products, I so so on my necklace I've got this this hand of Fatima, um, which was given to me by my by my aunt, um, and it's supposed to be protection against the evil eye and blah blah blah, um, and a whole bunch of magical properties. Um, but you know, and I see this I see this symbol in um, what's that cheap jewellery store, the visa or something. Oh, yeah. Um, and, like, you see it everywhere. Like, in, you know, made in China, really cheap. Um, things that people just wear on their jewel, like, you know, because they think it's pretty. Mm. But it has a significance, you know, and um, and they don't and they don't know it. And it's just I, – I just don't know if we can – if we can ever reach a place where someone who has never had to go through the same things, has never had their culture wiped out and have to rediscover it – understand um, the significance of what it means to, to, to carry to carry something like that mm. on your person. Thank you, Shahrazad. That was... I've laughed on a lot. No, <laughs> that was really incredible. Yeah. It's so lovely having a, one of our presenters also be our guest as yeah. well. It's really <laughs> lovely. Um, we have to almost head to our next interview, so we'll have a short community service announcement. The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair coming up on September 8th and 9th in Eltham. There'll be books, art, giftware and talks by Philip Johnson, A.B. Bishop and Loretta Childs. There'll also be demonstrations and workshops on botanical art, propagation and native bonsai, as well as activities for children, refreshments and door prizes. Saturday and Sunday, September 8th and 9th, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Contact at apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430-513-433 for more details. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR 855 AM. Uh, Dr. Shahid al-Alam, photographer, writer, curator and activist and chairperson of Majority World, is currently imprisoned in Bangladesh for uh, allegedly provocative comments made in an Al Jazeera interview 
about protests that are recently or are currently taking place across the country in Bangladesh. So today we're really lucky to have on the line with us Saiful Islam. He is a colleague and brother-in-law of Shahid al-Alam. Saif has lived and worked in Bangladesh and many other countries and he's currently settled in the UK and is the Managing Director of Majority World, which is a photo agency set up by Shahid al-Alam in 2004. Uh, Majority World is currently also a signatory to the Reclaim Photo Change.org petition that is circulating in Australia at the moment and getting lots of traction here uh, to support Dr. Alam. Welcome, Saiful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know that uh, you're currently in London, so um, we're on a very different time zone (laughs) here because here it's very early in the morning. Um, So first, can you explain the situation uh, at the moment, what's going on for Dr. Alam? Well, Dr. Alam um, was picked up by the detective branch of the police authorities, and that was on the 5th of August uh, at about 10.30 at night is approximately the time over here in London now. Um, and that was uh, uh, when, when they knocked on his door and they pulled him out of there. And um, he was initially not acknowledged that he was with the DB or the detective branch. And eventually they said that uh, they had him in his custody um, in the morning of the 6th of August. He was produced in front of the court. He claimed that he had been tortured. He alleged that uh, he had been physically hurt. The court heard this and asked for an examination to be done, but they also put him into the police remand for 10 days. An examination was done of his health, but uh, it did not look into the aspects of the torture. They only confirmed that he should be put back into remand, and he then waited for his legal assistance uh, to take place. Uh, Unfortunately, before his legal assistance could be given and before they were informed, he was uh, moved from that in investigation remand into the police uh, jail, which is approximately a few hours outside the capital. He is now currently in jail over there. He has met the legal assistants and members of his family for a few times. And at the moment, an application for his bail has been made, which is due to be heard on the 11th of uh, September. The latest news that I have is that uh, his health has deteriorated inside the prison. He's having pain and he's also having breathing problems. A press release has been, has been issued that uh, he should be given medical attention and this has been picked up in the media over there also. But uh, as far as I know, I haven't heard of any medical treatment being uh, given to him. And can you explain uh, what, so what's actually caused his arrest? What were the protests events that he was commenting about? Well, um, the, uh, there are two versions of this. The first one is that the protests, uh, which were led primarily by students, was due to road accidents that are a pretty frequent phenomena in uh, Bangladesh. And this is a combination of people driving without licenses, not, having, not following rules, um, lack of uh, you know, vehicles being checked, um, and a large amount of uh, also corruption in this whole uh, network uh, that is happening with the traffic management over there. Now, after the death, unfortunate death of two students on the 29th of July, uh, students took to the streets almost and um, they 
um, shut down the traffic and they insisted that there should be safe uh, traffic rules and that uh, they should be guaranteed to them because this has become a regular phenomena. Eventually, uh, over a few days, uh, this took a turn where uh, the traffic within the capital, Dhaka, almost came to a standstill. And it also sort of rolled on to other cities within Bangladesh, like Chittagong, Kulna, Stilet, and so on. And this became almost a national uh, halt. Uh, and uh, the police became involved. Uh, there were musclemen that became involved, and students got hurt. All this started to make it an extremely convoluted situation. Shahidul, who is a journalist by profession and a photographer, you know, uh, a photojournalist, is also a social activist. He was monitoring this situation, which is quite close uh, to his residence also in many cases. It's happening around him, and he was posting on Facebook what he was seeing, along with many other journalists. Eventually, he did give an interview on the 5th of August to Al Jazeera, where he was asked a variety of questions to which he gave his own personal opinion, uh, ranging from what were the reasons, what's the background of these strikes, uh, what could possibly be the outcome. Uh, it was, a, uh, I would say, a short but uh, uh, very well-articulated, pungent interview, and it appeared to, be, to, to have triggered off this response amongst the authorities where uh, they felt threatened uh, with the comments that had been made. And almost approximately about a couple of hours after this uh, interview, in the very same clothes in which he had given that interview, as a matter of fact, he was taken by the detective branch, and since then the rest has unfolded. It's shocking to hear. And he, he was actually yes. being charged under Section 57 of the Information Communications Technology Act. And so this act has affected a number of journalists and other citizens in the country that have spoken out. Do you know much more about this act or can you talk about how this has affected um, your brother-in-law, Dr. Alam, but others? Well, this act, um, which actually came in uh, during the previous uh, administration's time under ICT Article 57 uh, was criticized by the present government even as being too harsh when they were in the opposition. And there have been many calls that this act, which actually states that one can be imprisoned, fined, and for quite a long period of time for any kind of aspersions or any kind of perceptions that you have slurred or you have spread rumors or you have created an atmosphere of fear. So this act uh, was thought that it would be rescinded. However, the present government has actually strengthened the act and made it even more difficult uh, to face this act. There is talk that a new act will come in place. Um, I think it's called Article 37 or something to replace this one. However, many legal experts and human rights experts have criticized even the new act as being even more draconian and even more widespread than the previous. Under the current act where Shahidul has been uh, arrested and detained, many uh, people uh, have faced legal cases, and uh, these legal cases can range from simply um, harassment to detention to imprisonment, and there are hundreds of people who have been affected in this manner. Many human rights organizations, many um, legal organizations, and many opposition members have felt that the act has been used primarily against opponents or critics of the government, and therefore they see it as having an impact upon freedom of speech. And that is why the act has 
been often called as a tool or has been known as a tool to actually suppress dissent. So uh, this is the position that he's in now and he's uh, been charged with initially. We don't know further details because that will come up in a case hearing, I think, at uh, some point very soon. But certainly the act has affected a lot of people who you would presume are the ones supposed to bring the story out, like, for example, media people, journalists, academics, uh, and so on. And now it's affecting Shahidul also. Mm. And, and what are some of the risks for him? Because I know he could be facing up to 14 years in prison. Is that correct? That is the maximum. Uh, it was less before. But as I said, the present government has actually made it even tougher at the moment. Um, they have given their reason for it. But yes, that is the maximum that could happen if it is proven. It could range you know, from uh, low, less than that to up to 14 years. You could also have a fine in addition to that, I believe, of quite a steep amount. I mean, it's probably about in the region of about 10 million or something. And, and the way that, I guess the way that we've heard about it here in Australia is because um, uh, Dr. Alam is also a, an associate of RMIT. Uh, and so through our National Tertiary Education Union, uh, his petition, which is directed to, I think, is it the Bangladesh police or is it to government? I think it's uh, a range of authorities over there, the Bangladesh police or what we call as the uh, Home Ministry also the um, Ministry of Information. And, uh, you know, these are, it's being actually focused upon those uh, ministries which are primarily affected and are having an impact upon him also. Right. And so this, this petition, I guess, now is making rounds here. It's got almost 15,000 signatures, which is amazing. So That's can correct. you tell us a little bit about how and where it was actually um, conceived, this petition, and how it's made it over here, I guess? Is it, is it circulating worldwide? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I really don't know how the petition started, but it was almost a spontaneous. So uh, my feeling is that Shahidul has such a large equity, such a large network of friends, sympathizers, colleagues, students, uh, peers, uh, you know, in the whole area of uh, media, journalism, photography, curation, uh, that very quickly after this happened and the news got out that he's been arrested and detained and uh, two and two were put together in terms of him being detained under the uh, Article 57 of the ICT, uh, this um, petition came up. And it wasn't the only petition, to be quite frank. Uh, Change.org is one, Petition Online is another, and a third one, which is Avaz, uh, which is, again, a very major petition, has also started. And altogether, this probably the figure would be easily above 20,000-25,000 signatures because it's growing almost by the minute. So um, it, it was quickly launched by friends. Uh, it caught on through social media, and the signatures have kept piling in. So, you know, we have been seeing this happen. We have seen somebody start another petition and so on. Sometimes these petitions can be uh, multiplied because they are on different websites. But in essence, I think there are about three or four that are making the rounds out of it. Change.org, one of the first ones, is probably the one with the largest number. Fantastic. And we're just out of time now. Thank you so much, Saiful, for joining us. Um, so if people Thank want you. to show their support, they can, I guess they can even just search online for Dr. Shahid Alam. They can search Alam. online. There is a website also. I'm sorry to butt in, but there's That's a website okay. also, which is uh, Free Shahidul. And there are Facebook postings, there are YouTube clips, uh, there are Twitter accounts, but Free Shahidul will lead you to 
there. Of course, uh, the agency I look after, Majority World and DRIC, the agency in Bangladesh, uh, are obviously also you know, supporting the free shaidul. So one can also search for those um, links on these websites. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Saful, um, and have a good evening to you. And the same to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death, and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and most importantly, peers in the community. Remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. As a reminder, who we are. Every year for Nainok Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. Nainok means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. Nainok means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoff! You're on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3CR.org.au. It's currently 7.50. So you probably have heard in the media over the last few days that uh, Dutton has, or he, reintrodu- or he introduced a bill which has now um, had support from both sides of the bench in the lower house, uh, and it's the Migration Validation of Port Appointment Bill, um, which retrospectively authorises Ashmore Reef as a port to validate the detention of up to 1,600 asylum seekers. So to talk with us more about this issue, we have Rachel Saravan Matu, who's the Senior Lawyer of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre's Human Rights Law Programme. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for talking with us this morning. So the Turnbull government is actually not the first government to actually um, try to excise regions of Australia from our migration zone. So can you actually explain? It sounds a little bit confusing. So can we start off just by talking about what actually has happened in Ashmore Reef? Sure, no worries. So um, Ashmore and Cardia Islands... um, as some of you may know, are a few small uninhabited islands about 320 kilometres northwest of Australia. They're part of the Territory of Australia. Um, so what happened in 2002, the government appointed the Territory of Ashmore and Cartier Islands as proclaimed ports. And the purpose of them doing this was so that um, any people seeking asylum who passed through this area would be deemed as offshore rivals and then the government could send them to offshore processing centres in Nauru and PNG. 
And that's exactly what the government did do. They um, intercepted boats and intentionally dragged the boats through this area so that um, people seeking asylum on the boats would be deemed as offshore entries and then could be sent to offshore processing centres. Uh, so what's happened uh, more recently is that um, there have been a string of court cases um, in the federal courts, um, starting from about July this year, um, that have found that the government's appointment of Ashmore and Cartier Islands in 2002 is actually invalid um, because that area was not actually a port. Um, and so what this means is that it changes the legal status of people seeking asylum who pass through that area, um, and this significantly impacts on their rights and what the government told them about what they could and couldn't do. Mm. Uh, so, um, I mean, if you might, I could just go on to explain what some of these consequences are for people seeking asylum. Yeah, that would be great. Um, no worries. So uh, they were... Um, the government told them that they were um, deemed as unauthorised maritime arrivals under the Migration Act, whereas if this appointment... Um, because this appointment is invalid, that is actually incorrect. Um, so what this means is that uh, some people were told that they were um, fast-track applicants. So um, people might have heard of um, a specific uh, process that applies to certain people seeking asylum who arrived between uh, August 2012 and December 2013. Um, and this process is uh, a very unfair process with limited appeal rights. And so people were incorrectly told that they were part of this cohort that only had limited appeal rights when in fact it's come to light that they actually should have been entitled to full appeal rights um, at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, and another serious impact is that many people um, were unlawfully detained in, unsure, um, in offshore processing centres. So um, some people have been detained for over five years in um, uh, Nauru and uh, PNG and um, I guess one can't be begin to uh, quantify the irreparable harm that has done those people. Mm. Um, this is this is M, another presenter on Thursday Breakfast. Um, I was just wondering because you know I know that when I first read about this, like I don't have a law background, and I remember being quite shocked at the idea that the government can essentially just like rewrite history. It sort of feels, you know, in in the way that this bill um, has retrospective application um, and therefore has effect from for all arrivals since 2002, I feel like that's quite... Yeah, for people who maybe don't realise the sort of the, the, the powers of government to do that, that can seem quite bizarre, you know? It's, mm -hmm. it, and it really also reveals how much, um, you know, Australian territory is, is, is a fiction, in a sense. It's like a colonial fiction that is really malleable mm. and can change um, according mm -hmm. to the wills of government. Um, can you, sorry, it was a bit of a rant, but can you speak to <laughs> that? Definitely. I 100% agree with you. So, I mean, it is really shocking that the government can retrospectively change the law, and I, and I um, agree with you that I think people appreciate that the kinds of powers that um, the, um, the government um, has and is trying to get away with, I suppose, and so um, it is really good that I guess, attention's been brought to light. But um, this is not the first time the government has tried to... Um, has retrospectively um, changed the law um, to negatively impact on people seeking asylum. Um, so some people might remember uh, in 2014 the government uh, passed an act where um, it stripped the rights of um, people seeking asylum who were previously entitled to permanent protection visas to then only be um, entitled to temporary protection visas. So um, yeah, this isn't the first time the government's um, trying to do this. Uh, and it is shocking because it is a complete attack on the rule of law. And, I mean, people should be able to rely on the law um, and the right to provide them um, without thinking that it could change at any time and strip them of these rights. Um, 
and it is particularly concerning because the government should be uh, bound by the same law that, that we are bound by, um, and the fact that they can go back in time to, to change the law to, uh, to rectify their mistakes, uh, it's, it's a very scary um, and unfair thing that they're doing. And, Rachel, can you talk... Because Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is currently working with a number of clients that are affected... Um, by what's happening in Ashmore Reef. And I know, obviously, for confidentiality reasons, we can't go into too much about your clients um, per se, but can you talk a little bit about the work that ASRC is doing with your clients at the moment? Sure. So, I mean, I think one of the difficulties with this situation is um, the, the government has been very uh, obstructive and hasn't actually provided the, the details of the people who are affected um, by uh, this issue or even the details of the boats that pass through the Ashland Cartier Islands, which means it, it is very difficult to locate these people, to let them know that, um, you know, this affects their rights. Um, so what we're doing at the Farm Seeker Resource Centre is going through um, several hundreds of clients, thousands of clients that we've assisted over the over the years to try um, and identify who are maybe potentially affected by this issue um, and to contact them to let them know. Um, as you can imagine, this is quite a difficult process because um, you know, the, the appointment um, occurred, um, the, in, the invalid appointment was over about 11 years. Um, so people, these people um, are at various stages of the asylum-seeking process. Um, you know, some haven't had their interview with the department, some have gone to um, merits review, some have been at the court for um, several years. So it's um, trying to locate these people, contact them. Um, many don't have um, legal representation. Uh, anymore uh, or have ever had legal representation. Um, often they're not fluent in English. Um, you know, they um, have been through traumatic events that led to them seeking asylum and then, you know, um, the fact that they've been made to kind of languish in Australia for, for several years without being able to um, secure protection has resulted in many of them also having um, serious mental health issues. So we're, we're dealing with a particularly um, vulnerable cohort of people um, and what we are doing is trying to identify them, I, um, advise them of what their rights are, and then depending on, I guess, where, where they're up to in the process, um, where possible, um, trying to um, lodge in court um, to seek a summary injunction, um, to seek, sorry, a summary judgment that, um, this, that declares that they're not actually unauthorised maritime arrivals um, under the Migration Act and to ensure that they are able to access the um, correct review process with um, full rights. And so I guess one of the things, I have a, a good friend that works in migration law and we've kind of, sometimes we discuss the fact that there's been these major um, high court cases around refugee and migration law um, and that a lot of the big cases are already sort of won in, or sorry, have, have already been, have already played out and either been won or lost um, and that now it kind of comes down to the um, everyday sort of in individual single cases of assisting um, individual people and families that have sought asylum. Uh, do you kind of have a view on that? Do you think that there's a, a chance for us to kind of challenge these laws again at the high court level or do you think now it's sort of about individually assisting people and families? Uh, well, I guess at, at the, at the, with this current issue, um, at the moment all we can do is individually assist people. Um, we're doing what we can, I suppose, to to see, to try and, I guess, advocate that this bill should not be passed and to be raising awareness. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you uh, mentioned this, but uh, the bill has currently uh, passed to the House of Representatives with bipartisan support, but as of yesterday, it was referred to a Senate committee, um, which does give us a little bit more time till um, the 10th of September, which um, 
which is, I guess, useful so we can try and contact more people. But, again, um, I'm, I'm not sure what can be done what, if this bill actually is passed. But, you know, um, a couple, uh, one Senate committee has already raised concerns um, about this bill um, and that it does um, um, significantly impact on the rights of people seeking asylum. So um, we're um, hoping that um, now that this bill has been referred to, another, um, to a Senate committee that there will be a greater scrutiny um, and more questions asked about um, how this could even be possible for the government to retrospectively change the law and what kind of impact it has on people. Mm. And how does it get referred to a Senate committee? Is it because there was somebody that contested it? Because I know that there was only three lower house reps that um, voted against it. So is it because someone can refer it to a committee or how did that work? When when it was being, um, uh, yes, um, heard in the Senate, yes, someone referred it to a Senate committee. Okay. Um, can I just ask one last question quickly? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's really great to hear that it's been referred to a Senate committee and obviously there has been, you know, um, some outcry around it, although I'd say, like, not enough, given how mm. absolutely shocking and disgusting um, this move by government is. But I just wanted to, yeah, I guess ask a question about, um, you know, last week when Fraser Anning gave his maiden speech in Parliament, um, or both sides of Parliament were so quick to, you know, jump on the bandwagon of declaring themselves anti-racists and how we condemn racism in Australia. Um, and yet, you know, around the very same time, we have this bill getting, you know, almost unanimous support um, within Parliament. I was wondering, could you speak to that, um, the hypocrisy, I guess, or what, what the fact that, that, that this bill did pass um, says about... Australian politics right now and, you know, the the foundational racism of this country? Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to, to know where to begin, but I suppose this bill is just um, one part of a, of a larger framework that the government, and which has bipartisan support, is creating that deters and punishes people seeking asylum. Um, and it seems that when, when there is an outcry about racism, Perhaps people seeking asylum are not in, are not included, or people aren't thinking of them when they um, are. I guess there is a public outcry because, um, and I think one of the reasons why this bill has um, been able to go to the House of Representatives so quickly is that people are just not aware um, of what is happening um, in, in government, um, and I think the government's trying to quickly pass it without get, it getting much um, public awareness or any attention. But the, the ramifications. Um, are serious for um, this very vulnerable group of people seeking asylum and I think they've already been punished uh, enough by going through this um, awful unfair process um, so yeah I guess uh, I, I think that the outcry um, about racism it, uh, it often isn't um, seen to apply to people seeking asylum which um, is it, um, completely yeah I guess as you say hypocritical um, and a double standard yeah um, and unfortunately, we are running out of time, so we have to wrap up. But before then, I was just wondering, Rachel, how can people, um, you know, get involved or voice their concern um, with this bill? Sure. I guess um, the best thing they can do is contact their um, local member of parliament to just let them know that they're aware that this bill is being passed, that they're um, um, that they're upset about it, um, and explain the reasons why that it undermines the rule of law and it's. it's, um, it's counter to um, the democratic values that Australia stands for, um, that it's something they're particularly concerned about and could affect the way that they um, vote, essentially, because that's what politics is about, um, how people are going to vote, and that's what seems to get um, 
um, members of parliament to um, act. Wonderful. Thanks so much for talking with us this morning, Rachel. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. Yeah. 
So you're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855 on the AM dial. Um, the track that we just heard then was OG Love Kush Part 2 by the amazing Kait. Um, and I wanted to play that for you this morning because I just found out that she's playing at the Corner Hotel on September 21st and tickets are selling fast. So get in there because she's super cool. And then before that, we listened to... Um, Tahabil um, by Quarter to Africa um, and their... Uh, sort of a, a multi-Afro-Arab um, uh, band based in um, in uh, Israel um, or occupied Palestine. Um, and they do a bunch of stuff with influences from Yemen, Persia, Iraq um, and Africa. Yeah. Amazing. So I think we're going to have another great interview, but we might just play a short CSA. 
slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Do In Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. So, uh, the Melbourne Writers' Festival starts tomorrow um, and falling in line with that and sort of like as a precursor but separate um, to the festival is a monthly panel hosted by Moose Magazine. Uh, it's tonight and it's all about um, how to have your work published in magazines and lit, lit journals, literary journals, not lit as in so cool, um, um, but they are also very cool. Um, so one of the panellists is Hela Ibrahim, who is an Egyptian-Australian Muslim editor and founder and editorial director of Jed Press. Good morning. Morning. Uh, so before we get into it, could you tell us a bit about Jed Press and how it all came about? Uh, yeah, sure. Um so about a Jed, I think, uh, oh, God, how long has it been? Um, about a year and a half ago. Um, and it's basically a platform for people of colour to write or otherwise create, um, get their work published and to be paid for their work. Um, and started it just because, oh, well, actually there were a lot of reasons I started it, but mainly because there was, um, and there still is a lot of unpaid labour going on in the arts industry and people of colour are still being locked out of this industry. Um, so, yeah, that's good for us. And so I, I suppose we could get more into the sort of unpaid labour aspects um, later. Um, but um, could you tell us a bit about the panel tonight? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so it's 7 o'clock, Brunswick Mechanics Institute, um, and it's basically going to be me, Jeannie Maxwell, and Bonnie from Miss Magazine. Um, yeah, just talking about, you know, how to pitch and what to, what, what editors look for, and if you're a new writer, like, how to go about getting into writing, and yeah, um, just probably one of those, like, I, w I don't want to say one-on-one discussion, because, like, it's, it's it's not a one-on-one -on -one discussion, but if you are new to writing or if you're new to the arts industry, it's a good idea to come listen and just to make sure that you don't fall into the same uh, traps or mistakes that uh, new writers can sometimes fall into. Mm, yeah. Um, and I suppose... Um especially when it comes to, like, sort of getting experience, you know, as a, as a young writer or whatever, um, and you touched on it just before with um, uh, unpaid labour, that idea that you need to have some sort of, you know, huge portfolio before you can apply for, for paid labour. Um, can you speak a bit to that? 
Okay, so even that idea, right? That this idea that you have to have a huge full, like huge portfolio before you can start getting paid work is honestly like you would think so, right? You would think, okay, if like this whole idea that you know when you're a new and emerging writer and you're doing a lot of work for exposure, that stops after a certain point. The truth is, it doesn't. Maxine Benavidez, mm-hmm. who I'm like, is just yeah, like smashing it out there with the books and the publishing. I remember reading a tweet from her once that was like, she still gets things where it's like can you do you do this for the exposure so it doesn't even seem to matter these days how big your like um how big your uh, portfolio is like i mean i'm just trying to think of like the most popular writer i can think of like jk rowling right harry potter i bet i i, I would not be surprised if like to hear that she was also like still being asked to do things just so you know just for the exposure um so it's it's a, it's not i wouldn't say it's at all um limited to new writers, but it's definitely, definitely worth the new and emerging writers, um, where there is, yeah, this expectation that you'll, um, even in professional level jobs, like, I mean, there's the arts industry, there's, you know, the kind of, the fun jobs, I guess, like, if you're, like, writing articles for Overland and Lifted Brow, where it's not actually a professional paid work kind of thing, um, although I do think they pay, but even if you're, like, in a copywriting job or in, you know, in professional editing role, um, there is still, you are still being paid in a lot of instances a lot less than you should be. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a bit of a problem, um, and it's, yeah, it hasn't, hasn't, it hasn't slowed down. It hasn't stopped. It's, things are slightly starting to get better in terms of, um, you know, literary magazines now paying writers where they used to not do that, but it's still, we've still got a long way to go. Mm. So, what are some of the some some of the challenges then? On top um, of that, because <laughs> that's also a challenge. I mean, okay, so like on on top of that, so trying to get into the industry, um, a lot of. A lot of this is this has been a recurring thing um, that I've been hearing about lately. Um, there are so many jobs being advertised as entry level roles, right? Um, entry level role, you're doing very basic work, and somehow they still require you to have three to five years worth of experience, probably several degrees. Like there is, I mean, even even if you just look at like the, the university degree, the university degree. I've done a university degree in. Um, in editing and publishing specifically. And it was extremely useful for networking and all of that. But in terms of, like, technical skills, nothing – I didn't learn anything there that I couldn't have learned within three weeks on a job. Um, and so – and so the but, but even knowing that, they're like, every, every job you'll see advertised will have a minimum requirement of a university-level degree. And it's just – even that alone is just a barrier to access sometimes because, um, yeah, like having having a direct university degree won't necessarily help you, but they're still asking for it. And and like without going too deep into it, but you know, getting to university is one thing, finishing university is one thing. Having like accumulating fifty thousand dollars worth of debt in an undergrad, like it's all it all adds up um, to form just one more barrier, right? Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of that going on. And then once, and if you're lucky enough to get into an entry level, de- entry level role with your five years experience and probably multiple degrees, you're then, like I said, not really been paying, you're not really, you're often not being paid um, a rate that you should be. And 
you know, you're, there are some workplaces that are just absolutely toxic to work in. So there's there's a lot going on there in terms of some of the barriers that we face trying to get into different writing jobs, trying to get into different editing jobs. Mm. Um, and uh, as we know, people of colour face extra barriers. Oh, God, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, for example, um, just uh, being sort of cornered into just writing about uh, like a specific experience like so for example oh you're Muslim you should just write about Muslim issues or whatever um, uh, not saying that's not valid but also it, it also means you get cornered into just writing about that um, and when we look at the faces and the names in Australian media in general we definitely see a lack of, 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 representation, of representation and especially in the sort of decision making um, and editorial position like, editor, like, edit, like editors and news directors and that sort of thing um, um, and I suppose, could you just speak a bit to that? Oh, look, it's exactly what you said, right? Um, there are absolutely additional barriers um, to entry if you are a person of colour. Um, it's usually rude. Like, and this isn't just like, you know, university born. Like, it starts from way back, right? Like, the minute you're born, you are, like, at a disadvantage from, for certain factors. Um, but exactly as you say, also, there is the fact that we're, like, if you look at the number of writers, like people, writers of colour, um, if the numbers are slightly increasing and we're getting better at it slowly but surely. But yeah, once you start looking into like organisationally, like who's got power, you know, who are the editors, who's behind the scenes, it absolutely is like, <laughs> it's absolutely white. Like it's, um, Oh, I'm trying to think. I don't know. I don't know if you saw or if, um, if listeners saw the recent Q&A panel, um, the literary one, um, where they had Maxine of clark Michael Muhammad Ahmed, um, John Marsden, Sophie Laguna, and another white guy. I don't know. And a white folks. Where it's like, I mean, that's just a good, that's just a good, like, if you just look at that panel itself, like, that's a good breakdown where it's like four white people, one black woman, one Lebo guy. And like, they were just, it was, yeah, it, I mean, that whole, that whole panel was a mess. Um, but it, but that's basically like the, I would say the makeup where you've got just, it's over, and the, and the person with the power, as in the host, is, just, is still a white old man. Um, <laughs> yes, totally. You know what I mean? like, that's, that's, that's the balance of power. Like, we can, like, we're starting to break in as writers, but like behind the scenes, like, you know, there are a handful of editors of colour. And actually, you know what, actually, if you're not looking at the bigger publishing houses and if you're not looking at the bigger behind the arts thing, like who's working at Writers Victoria, who are the mentors that, like, you know, um, at these organisations, um, even if you look at that, if you're just looking at, like, magazines, right, like, look at... I don't, okay, you know what, I'm actually not going to name names because there are a lot of other factors going on. But, like, let's just, let's, there's a particular, you know, publication in Melbourne that really is quite proud of itself for hiring, like, diverse editors. They have people of colour and trans people, and they're doing really well on that end. Except for the fact that their editors don't get paid. <laughs> like, so it's like, cool, I'm really happy... Like, and it's it's just like, do you get mad about that? Do you not like? I'm really happy that there is an opportunity and that they are opening up to um, diversifying the the people with the power in the organisation. Although, but like the 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 ultimate big boss is still a white guy. But anyway, um, but like, you get do you get happy that there is that opportunity, or do you get mad that pocket being used for unpaid labour? 
like it's still and this is what I mean it's like okay even if even when the few chances we do get to go into the behind the scenes and hold some power it's just it's yeah we're unpaid and we're not it's not like it's not contracted work or anything it's unreliable it's that kind of thing so yeah it this is just another area that we really need to start focusing on as well because I don't know how you I can't see how you can fundamentally shift the way the arts industry works without fundamentally shifting the actual system, the actual behind it. Yeah, and the system that's controlled by um, usually old white men. Um, But I believe you're also uh, involved or presenting at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Oh, yeah, I am. I'm actually really excited about that. I have not prepared at all. I mean, I have, I've prepared a little bit. I've prepared a little bit, but I still haven't written the stuff I need to write and, like, read the stuff that I need to read. But, um, but yeah, no, I'm really excited. I'm doing three panels, um, one with Michael Muhammad Ahmed, um, the author of The Tribe and the Lib. He is a gun. Like, honestly, I don't recommend ever watching Q&A, but, like, just watch that Q&A episode just with him. He is the best. Every time the host would, like, just make a statement, he'd look at him and be like, what's the question? I'm like... <laughs> died it was brilliant he's brilliant um so yeah so there's a um local libraries event to discuss his book the live um there's a panel with Adet Collada, um Elena Gomez and Sam Cuny and myself um called how white is my writing which mm-hmm. I think was a really interesting discussion just as we look into like uh you know racial theory and and like yeah the rampant whiteness in writing in publishing um and it's interesting because there is a white guy on it um so i think because i think a lot of the panels that i've done uh, around that topic has just been people of color and so i'm i'm just one i'm curious to see how the dynamic and whether the conversation will change based on that but that sounds it's going to be a good panel i think um and then i'm also reading a piece at um at the last ever in Australia, Women of Letters, um, I'm going to be reading a goodbye letter that I haven't actually written, and I haven't. I had a theme picked out, uh, as in I had a, I had an idea, and then decided last minute not to go with it. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see what next week brings. Oh, also, I'm going to be at Afro Hub, um, breaking into the publishing industry, not as a panelist or anything, but just, um, just their network kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there's a fair bit on. Yeah, oh, be a jam-packed week, and hopefully we um, oh, yeah. can catch up at the Melbourne Writers Festival uh, next week. <laughs> um, anyway, that's all we have time for. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, and we might get you back on um, next week. That sounds amazing. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Thanks, Hella. Bye. Bye. Rumination. Three CRs, rooming house and homeless persons issues program featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am.
here on 3CR 855 AM. We're almost out of time for the day, but um, before we head off, we're going to raise a quick few things. Um, So we didn't actually talk about it today because we're all about community news and alternative news, but there has been uh, attempts uh, to... At a leadership spill, I think where we had our second one last night, I think a few hours ago. But um, Peter Dutton, and we don't normally like talking about what Peter Dutton says, but on his Twitter feed only a few moments ago, he said, "A few moments ago, I spoke with Malcolm Turnbull to advise him. I believe the majority of the party room no longer supported his leadership. Accordingly, I asked him to convene a party room meeting at which I would challenge for the leadership." of the Parliamentary Liberal Party. So I think that's important to know for our listeners because, I mean, we don't really elect leaders anymore. We sort of just watch party room spills. Mm-hmm. Um, and to push back against that, our lovely coordinator, Gab, has brought to our attention a project that's being uh, happening in Moreland at the moment around uh, diversity uh, and multiculturalism in Moreland. So they're looking for people of diverse cultural backgrounds who settled in Moreland in the 50s, 60s and 70s to have their portrait taken and displayed along Sydney Road. So if that is you or you know somebody that did, I know that my dad did, settled in Moreland in the 50s. Um, he so he can my dad can or listeners can <laughs> call Natasha on o four one seven five seven three one three four or even just get in contact with three CR to find out more. Yeah, and the last thing that we just really quickly want to let um, listeners know about are the prison strikes that are happening in the mm-hmm. US at the moment. Um, so they started on August 21st and they're running until September 9th. And we're going to be going into more detail about this next week, but we really, really encourage people to find out more. Um, because, yeah, so what, what essentially, so this has been organised by, um, you know, incarcerated folk in the US um, and spearheaded by jailhouse lawyers speak and organisers have put together a list of 10 national demands that you can find online, which include things like a media end to prison slavery, um, improved prison conditions, an end to um, death by incarceration or life without parole and increased rehabilitation services um, for people who are locked up inside. And we can't talk about it anymore because we're running out of time. But thank you so much for listening to Thursday Breakfast. (laughs) And we'll talk to you next week. And thank you, Sherry, for being our guest today. (laughs) 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.